what I will tell people is that if you've never experienced N4 Radiant, you you honestly don't know what you're missing. It you is lived the yet. <laughs> yeah, you haven't lived. It is it is literally the the greatest heating system out there. There's no drafts. There's no cold spots. Um, you know, the air temperature is even floor to ceiling. At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. A nice, even heat. That's how a lot of people would describe in-floor radiant heating. Now, we have Tony First, one of my favorite guests on the podcast. Tony First from Armstrong Fluid Technology. So knowledgeable and patient, good storyteller. And we've talked about many, many topics. And we're going to talk about in-floor radiant heating and going through some of the technical things that come along with it, right? And I think it's a growing trend. As Tony talks about, it was popular back in the day, but it's a growing trend nowadays because a lot of installs are happening with these gas-fired wall-mounted boilers that are picking up a zone, which is radiant floor heating. So let's get into this conversation now. This is the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. This podcast is sponsored by The Master Group, and I'm heading into one of their branches tomorrow, and what I'm going to do is pick out a round of tools that I feel are interesting, because when I grab some tools I feel are interesting, even if I don't know what they are or never used them before, and I ask the audience on Facebook, Instagram, wherever, we always get good feedback that other people can can see or listen to or or read. I get that feedback and so does the audience. So everybody learns from it. So look for some tool demos from Master Group coming real soon. Check out master.ca in the meantime. This podcast is sponsored by Cintas, a giant in the blue collar uniform industry. They got all kinds of uniform solutions. They'll even clean them for you if you choose to go with that service, right? And listen, they got Carhartt stuff. They got breathable, stretchy stuff. They have all kinds of stuff that you can check out. We got a landing page. It is cintas.com forward slash HVAC. Know what I'll check out the landing page and see if anything suits your fancy for your team members. Welcome to the HVAC Know It All podcast. Recorded from a basement somewhere in Toronto, Canada. Your host and HVAC tech, Gary McCready, will take you on a deep dive into the industry discussing all things HVAC. From storytelling to technical discussion. Enjoy the show. Okay, so Tony, you are starting to get up there in possibly the, the lead or second place for the amount of appearances on this show. You're getting up there. I have to go back and start counting, but you are you're back again. But I always love when you're on because you're you're so knowledgeable, patient, and you explain things in a well thought out manner. And and uh, and, and I'm glad you're here. How you doing tonight, man? Gary, I'm doing wonderful, man. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, your your podcasts are wonderful. You have you and I have become really actually good friends, even though we've never actually met in person. 
um, only because I don't get up to Toronto that often. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we have some wonderful conversations before the podcast, during the podcast, uh, and we get to talk about all kinds of stuff that's really near and dear to my heart, which is really servicing and operating and installing heating air conditioning systems uh, for residential and commercial buildings. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of the internet. You, you don't need to meet someone physically anymore <laughs> to, to have a relationship with them. It's, it's, it's really messed up when you think about it. Uh, we're in the matrix or something these days. So I, I don't know, but that that's for another, maybe another podcast topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think what, what's really cool about this is that, um, you know, we get to talk about stuff and help educate the, the, the people in the, you know, in coming into the trade now. And even those that have been in for a while, you know, I've been at this for a lot of years. Um, you know, to give you an idea, you know, when I started college, I was using a slide rule. So, you know, I'm officially old, uh, but it's being able to share that knowledge. And, and at the end of the day, while some of the technology we have today has changed quite a bit from what it was when I started out, the basic premise of heating air conditioning is still the same. We're transferring mm-hmm. energy from one form to another. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, things are still the same. Yeah, no, you're right. It's the basic principles are still there. It's just the technology has gotten these things to an efficiency level that is like outrageously uh, better than what it was 20, 30 years ago. And with that comes sometimes some, some headaches with malfunctioning of electronic parts and stuff. But I mean, it's getting better over time, I think. But I mean, we could talk about a million things, but we're here to talk about something that is a growing um, trend, maybe. It, it seems to be slowly or pro- progressively growing anyway, I should say. And that is in-floor radiant heating. And everybody that's had it or experienced it says it's it's a wonderful type of heat to have in a building. What do you think about that? I agree. So to give you a little bit of background, uh, I grew up, in in a house built in the 1950s and we had it was a slab house slab on grade house and we had in-floor radiant heat now the in-floor radiant heat we had was was one inch steel tube uh filled with hot water that circulated underneath the house and but it was absolutely phenomenal heat i can remember as a kid sitting there on saturday mornings with my little brother in shorts and a t-shirt 10 degrees outside, eating cereal, watching Saturday morning cartoons, sitting on the floor being just as warm as could be and not a care in the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with throughout the industry, we, we had in floor radiant was really, really popular um, in the forties and fifties in, in a lot of the United States. And it kind of fell out of favor for, the, the warm air side, um, yep. because of the cost, um, the, the old steel tube systems were extremely expensive to put in. Um, it was difficult to work with, you know, bending steel tube on a job site was work and it wasn't easy to deal with. So it kind of fell out of favor for warm air. And then of course people started wanting air conditioning and 
air conditioning lends itself easier to warm air than in Floridian does. So we kind of got away from it. Well, now people have kind of figured out, gee, you know, we're, we're starting to be more energy efficient. We're being more energy conscious. And we figured out that going back to what we used to do, you know, going back to old school, so to speak, and going to in-floor radiant actually makes a lot more sense. Now, mm -hmm. the cool part is we've improved the technology. We've gotten away from steel tube systems. We've gotten away from in-floor copper, uh, which had its own set of problems. And we've now gone to um, polytubing, uh, you know, PEX and Upanor and all the, the underfloor plastic tubing um, that can be, you know, you can purchase it in very large coil length quantities. So you avoid underground joints and, and all that stuff that was problematic with the older systems. And they've also developed in-floor radiant systems that will work on multi-story houses without having to have, you know, a poured concrete slab. Uh, you know, you can use lightweight uh, gypcrete and things like that for your second floor to give a little bit more mass. But they have radiant panels that s slide up in between joist spaces. So it doesn't make any difference whether you have hardwood floors, ceramic tile, carpet. In-floor radiant works with all the different flooring types because we've improved technology. Um, so when you look at all that, and, and then you couple that with high efficiency boilers, you know, so, you know, we've talked in, in the past about condensing boilers and how condensing boilers work and that condensing boilers have to work because you got low return water temperatures to get the flue gas to really condense, no different than a, than a condensing furnace. Well, in-floor radiant lends itself really, really well to condensing boilers because I want those cold return water temperatures. I want return water temperature below 130 degrees. Well, with an in-floor radiant system, I'm leaving, I'm supplying water at somewhere around 120 to 130 degrees because you don't want your floor so hot you can't walk on. So that's why your yeah. supply water temperatures are so much lower. Mm -hmm. And so in that situation, if you take a 20 or 30 degree delta T, now your boiler return water is coming back at about 100 degrees. You're in the prime area to run a condensing boiler. And if you look at boiler technology today, you know, we used to build behemoth boilers. They were just absolutely massive. They were big hunks of cast iron and, you know, you had to run them hot to keep them from condensing because the condensing would rust the boiler out. But now you would lose all you would lose all that heat out the stack. Right. Yeah, because you were you were atmospheric, you were atmospheric, natural draft boiler, and you lost heat out the stack, and it was just it was horrible. Well, now because we've gone to condensing boilers and direct vent, um, and we'll talk in a minute about you know 100 percent outside air combustion air being direct ducted to the furnace, to the boiler. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um because that has a, some, some problems associated with it. But when we look at a condensing boiler, you know, we now have the ability to do you know, the modular condensing boiler, so you don't have to have this big behemoth taking up massive amounts of floor space in your basement. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you can fit a ModCon boiler uh, in a closet. I mean, they're, you know, they, they're wall hung. They're small. Mm -hmm. They're easy to deal with. 
Um, yes, they take a little bit more, you know, you, you got to be a little bit smarter about working on them. Uh, it's not, you know, it's gone are the days of thermocouples and 24 volt gas valves. We've got, you know, modulating burners and a lot more high tech controls on them. But at the end of the day, we're still tra transferring energy from the fuel to the water, but we're doing it more efficiently. We're getting, you know, 93, 94, 95% of the energy back out into the water because we're condensing the flue gases down and we're, you know, sending flue gas temperatures out that, you know, are 100 degrees instead and of four so and 500. And something, I'm just going to stop you there for a minute. And, and one of the, the things that make these things so efficient is the turndown ratio on these boilers and they're getting higher and higher. Like the, the ratios are just getting phenomenally higher where these things can like get down to like 10% of its, of its full capacity. Yeah. It's, it's not uncommon to have a, a ModCon boiler that's got a 20 to one turndown. Um, mm -hmm. I know they're, they're pushing that envelope trying to get the turndown even higher, but if you do multiples of them, you know, it's not uncommon to see a 20 or 30 to one turndown, depending on how many of them you put in and how much of a building you're trying to heat. You know, is it a single family residence or is it a, you know, large apartment building or a condo, but you get these really high turndown ratios. And the advantage to that is it gives you the ability to zone your system. You know, one of the challenges uh, can, yes. can I, uh, let's go, let's go to zoning in one second. Can you, okay. for the people that are going, huh, turn down, what is that? Can you explain turn down? And then we'll go to what you were talking about with, with zoning. Okay, sure. So when we look at turn down, you know, a boiler's rated at a hundred thousand BTUs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, okay. and, and when I say, you know, 10 to one turn down, that means that boiler will turn down to all the way down to 10% of its input firing rate. So one tenth of a hundred thousand BTUs. Yeah. So yeah. So if it's a 200,000 with a 10 to one turndown ratio that we can get down to 20%. Right. Just, just, so, yeah. Right. So, and, and the way you get more higher turndown when, when you've got a bigger system and you, and even a, even a medium sized system, you put multiple boilers in. Okay. So if I have four boilers, each with five to one turndown, my system turndown is 20 to one. So that's where the little mod cons really come into play. And it's not uncommon to see, you know, four of those things on a rack to get a, you know, 20 to one turndown on the entire boiler. Um, Cause you're looking at the turndown of the entire unit, not just a single unit. Um, so that's how you get higher turndowns with, some of the smaller turndown ones, you know, the five to ones or the eight to one, some of the smaller mod cons. Mm -hmm. And okay. so, you know, the, all of these things have some unique piping characteristics. Um, usually each boiler has its own individual pump. Uh, so you get the right flow rate through the boiler. Some of the ones on the market today, depending on who you're looking at, um, they actually have variable speed pumps on them and yep. the boiler will actually control the pump and control the speed of the pump to match the firing rate. So you get the exact amount of water flow you need at the exact firing rate that you're running at. So you get the exact delivered water temperature out of the boiler. And where this really comes into play is when we have a zoned system. Okay. And there's, there's multiple ways of zoning a system. Um, you know, the old school way of zoning a system is each zone had its own individual circulator pump. So you had a little, you know, 
250 watt circulator pump that turned on and off and it was just an on off circulator and you had no flow. So when the circulator went off, the heat went off. Mm -hmm. Um, that's one way of, of zoning a system. So, you know, each bedroom would have its own thermostat and its own circulator pump. And you'd turn the pump on when you wanted heat and you'd turn the pump off when you didn't want heat. It was that simple. Um, some of the better systems, instead of putting an individual pump for each zone, they have one variable speed circulator in the basement or wherever the mechanical room is. And you'll have zone valves and the thermostat controls the zone valve. And when it opens and closes, you know, it calls for heat, it opens the zone valve and the pump speeds up because the pump's looking at the entire system. And as more zones call for more heat, the pump just speeds up to, to satisfy the zone load. Um, what is that? What is that Armstrong circulator that is the modulating type? What, what's um, that? So we have, we have two. There's the Compass H and the Compass R. Um, and, and the difference is one is a wet rotor and one is a dry rotor. And the difference between a wet rotor and a dry rotor pump is in a wet rotor pump, the water surrounds the motor. So the, the actual rotor can is inside the fluid that's being pumped. Okay. And then in a dry rotor pump, the motor is outside. And that's more like your traditional, you know, old three-piece circulator. You remember the, the old three-piece, you know, third horsepower yeah. circulators, the bearing yep. assembly and all that. So the yep. dry rotor circulator looks more like that. Okay. Um, it it just doesn't have the bearing assembly. It's a direct coupled. Um, the impeller is actually on the motor shaft, but it's still got the same uh, variable speed technology and the sensorless control, so that it doesn't require a differential pressure transmitter, the same as the wet rotor. Um, so one of the caveats to wet rotor versus dry rotor pumps. And we've talked about this before when we talked about boilers. Um, wet rotor pumps, because they are, most, most all of them on the market today are a permanent magnet motor, um, whether it's ECM or PWM style motors, but they're a permanent magnet motor. So they're not an induction motor like we've used for years that you know has a capacitor and, and all that stuff. Um, with permanent magnet motors, the problem is, even when the power's off, that magnet is energized. It's still magnetized. So if there is a lot of magnetite or ferrous metals in the system, what ends up happening is, is they get attracted to that rotor because it's okay. in the water stream. Mm -hmm. So in those systems where you're using a wet rotor pump, there's nothing wrong with wet rotor pumps. You know, we Armstrong makes a bunch of them. We like them. But when you use a wet rotor pump, in a closed loop system, you have to have a um, dirt mag. You know, it's basically a magnetic separator in the return system ahead of the pumps. And what it's got is it's got a big magnet in it. It's just a dirt separator. Uh, it's got a filter in it, but it's got a magnet in there. So any of the metallic, any of the iron or ferrous particles that are in the system get trapped in there instead of ending up in your pump. I've seen that. I've, I've seen videos of people like opening those up and taking it out and like all kinds of shavings and filings and stuff like that that's been in the system for years but now they've gone and replaced the boiler system and put one of those filters in and they, right. they pull it out a couple weeks after and they're it's just collected all all of the the junk inside the system they're pretty cool yeah 
So You've heard me talk about it many times on the podcast, on our little breaks here. JB Warranties offers warranty programs outside of OEM manufacturer warranty programs. So basically it's called an extended warranty. So if you want to go that route, JB Warranties has a ton of products to help out your customers with extended warranty programs where they will reimburse you for your labor and reimburse you for parts. The customer's happy and you move on, right? Something to think about. Anyway, Company Cam is another product that a lot of companies now nowadays are using, not just HVAC, but in, in companies where there's a lot of moving parts, there's a lot of jobs going on and, and things need to be kept track. Now, when I see their ads on uh, like Facebook or whatever, people are like, I, I have a phone already. And yeah, you utilize your phone as part of this. You download all of these images and pictures and everything that you collect to the cloud, their cloud, so it's not taking up storage on your phone, but everything is in one place. Every single piece of media, every media file, as long as it's uploaded to that cloud, can be seen by everybody in the office. The customer, if you want them to, can be used as history back on the job, and there's no sifting through pictures. I'm always sifting through pictures on my phone when I'm creating content. So check out Company Cam because it can help you get organized. I got to talk about TradeFox. TradeFox is a sub-brand of Subco, and it's really doing a lot of good things in the industry by taking inventors from the HVAC industry and turning their product into something that can be held and used in the field, and they're working together on it. So there's an email. If you have a, an idea, it's ideas at subcotradefox.com is the email that you would reach out to if you have a prototype or an idea of a tool. So reach out to them. And I got to big up Nylog once again. I was putting in a, a ductless system, four zone, and I use Nylog on every single flare, even though some of these manufacturers tell you not to use it. But if you apply it properly, you apply it with a clean tip on your bottle to a clean surface, Nylog is going to help seal those leaks up for a very, very, well, I shouldn't say seal those leaks up. It's going to help prevent leaks for a very, very long time on your flares. So check out Nylog as well if you haven't already. Even if you build a new infrared radiant heating system and you've used PEX tubing, okay, um, you've used that, you know, you've used the poly tubing, you've still got some ferrous component parts that are in your system. So, you know, not the entire system isn't all plastic. There are still ferrous metals in that system. So even if it's mostly plastic, um, you really still want to put the um, dirt mag in there to protect the pumps. Cause that's what you're really doing is you're protecting the pumps. Yeah. Um, you know, you've been on enough job sites, you know, metal ends up in places you don't necessarily want it when you're doing open tubing. Um, you know, if you've, you know, you're like me, you've done refrigeration and, and air conditioning and you take a system apart and you find copper shavings in it and you're going, how did those get in here? I was really diligent in how I reamed my tubing and how I kept things clean. And you still end up finding them in the dryer course. Um, and the same thing happens on a piping system. You know, when you're putting hot water heating in, you end up with shavings in the system that you didn't want in there. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you're going to build, you know, let's say you're going to build a header for your hot water boiler system. And, are you going to build that header out of copper? You're going to build it out of steel. You're going to build it out of, you know, plastic and, and do fusion welding. 
Uh, there's a lot of different ways to build it. Well, you still have the chance to get shavings and other debris in there. So the dirt mag is not a bad thing to put in because it's going to do two things for you. One, it gets the ferrous particles out, but it's also got a filter element in it that will trap other stuff that's non-magnetic. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. Um, so the other thing that we want to think about, okay, is we got to make sure that we get air out of the system. You know, in years past, older hot water systems, we heated the water up to 180 degrees and it was really easy to get the air out of the system. Yeah. Okay. Because as you heat the water up, it wants to liberate the free oxygen or the free air that's in, dissolved in the water. With the lower temp systems, it's harder to get the air out. And so the best thing to do is put an inline air purger in. Uh, it's basically just a big cylinder that has an air scoop in it. And the water velocity, we drop the water velocity down inside it because it's much larger than, it's larger in internal diameter than what the pipeline is. And that's how you get air out is you drop the velocity on the water down to less than a couple feet per second. The, the dissolved oxygen will liberate out as micro bubbles and collect in the top of this thing and vent out the air vent at the top of it. Um, the cool part about them is, is they also have a port on the bottom of them where you can screw your expansion tank fitting in. So you can connect your expansion tank to that same device. And those usually go, those go on the supply side because you want it at the hottest water. So you can connect your expansion tank, your air vent, your inline air purger, all in one device. Um, and it makes it really easy. It makes a clean install because uh, you don't have to set an expansion, don't have to hang an expansion tank on the wall. You don't have to get brackets for it and figure out where you're going to put it and how you're going to mount it and all that. Um, because a lot of the little residential systems, you can get by with a two-gallon expansion tank. They don't need mm -hmm. to be, you know, big floor-set tanks. Now, that's not to say that you don't have a system that's big enough for that. But you can use that bottom connection then to run a half or three-quarter-inch line over to your expansion tank if you've got a floor-set tank. Yeah. Hmm. So you got so, lots of flexibility. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I want to move the conversation to a couple things. Uh, sure. I was thinking about reset control and and if it's a good idea to have or if we even need it in floor radiant. So basically controlling in floor radiant, what, what's the best way? And do we need to implement reset on on that? You, you really you really don't need hot water reset because if you think about yeah. it, we're running such low water temperatures anyway. Mm -hmm. And so you really don't need to reset it downward. Um, which is, you know, which is the whole reason we put outdoor reset on in the past was because we were running 180 degrees and we needed 180 degrees at zero or whatever the outdoor design condition was. And a lot of the year it was, was less than, it was warmer than that outside. So we reset the water temperature downward to save energy. Well, the new little, you know, infor radiant systems you know, we're running 110 to 120 degree water. You're not going to gain a whole lot by resetting it. The other thing is because the in-floor radiant system in a lot of these buildings, you've got a high mass floor. You know, you've either got gypcrete or concrete um, or some other massing to the floor. You're really working off that thermal mass. So you don't get the cycles. And if you reset too much, it takes too long to recover. 
Yeah. I, I was thinking in my head before I asked you that question that I didn't think it would be needed, but I wasn't really sure why <laughs> until, yeah. until I, I was trying to think of, I was trying to put the thought together on, on why we shouldn't need reset, but also too, like we're trying to maintain, I mean, I guess we're not trying to maintain this, this, the, the, the same loop temperature under the floor at all times, because obviously if it's cooler out or if it's warmer outside, we don't, we don't want that water temperature being, like where I'm going with this is like, are we keeping the the loop at the same temp all the time? Probably not, right? Well, you're you're going to vary it, but you're not going to vary it as much. So you know, in, in in the old days with hot water reset, we'd reset from 100 and 180 down to 140 uh-huh. um, or 150. Well, with an in floor radiant system, your your range of operating temperature from min to max is only about 10 to 15 degrees. So you really don't have to um, do a whole lot of reset. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the cost of the reset control versus the ROI and and what you're gonna get in payback, it's really not that significant. Um, And so you have to, you know, and you also have to look at, you know, how the house is built or how the structure's built what, what it faces, where the loads are at, um, how people are using the space, um, things to think about, you know, do you want to put setback thermostats in? Because if you put setback thermostats in and there's nothing wrong with it, but you have to make sure you tell the setback thermostat, you know, most of the newer ones today. And I'm, you know, I'm real familiar with, with Nest and Ecobee and, you know, a lot of the more higher end, um, Wi-Fi type thermostats, you have the ability to tell them what type of heating system you've got so that it can do its proper heat anticipation and adjust restart times. You know, mm-hmm. you tell it, okay, hey, I want it to be warm at seven o'clock in the morning when I get out of bed. Um, mm-hmm. God, I don't know who sleeps till seven o'clock in the morning, but you know, some people get to <laughs> get lucky enough to do that. Um, but you want it warm when you get out of bed in the morning. Well. Yeah. Thermostat's going to figure out, you know, when you tell it that it's got hot water radiant heat, it will adjust the start time accordingly because that system does take longer to heat up. It takes longer to recover from a night setback because it, you know you you've got so much more mass to heat up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, radiant heat is slow, um, and this is the beauty of radiant heat is, you know. That heat's coming up from the floor. It heats every everything evenly from the floor to the ceiling, but it's slow. It's not like a forced air furnace that you turn it on and within a minute or two, you got warm air blowing out of the registers. Yeah. Uh, water radiant's not that quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the other reasons that you got to think about, you know, installing setback thermostats, installing reset controls, and all of those things that you would normally do with forced air you got to rethink a little bit with Infor Radiant. All right. So then what is your recommended course of action when it comes to controlling Infor Radiant? So if, I, if I'm designing the system, um, my absolute favorite Infor Radiant control system is made by a company called Tecmar, T-E-K-M-A-R. Yep, um, seen, seen lots of them. And what I really like about them is they have a system 
that works. It's got individual zone thermostats. Um, their zone thermostats can work one of two ways. Um, and you can either control a zero to 10 volt modulating control valve. You can control an on-off control valve, or you can control an on-off circulating pump for the heating side. The other thing that I like about that same Tecmar thermostat is it will interface with via, I believe it's BACnet or LAN, and I don't remember which. Um, it will interface with most all of the VRF systems on the market today. So, you know, one of the questions I get asked is, okay, I put an infrared radiant system in, but I want air conditioning. What am I going to do? Well, in that case, what I recommend to people is you've spent all this money to zone your hot water heating system for each individual room in your house, put a VRF system in, um, you know, because now you've got the best of both worlds. You've got zoned air conditioning and now you've got zoned hot water heat. Um, and if you really like the idea of using hydronics, um, there's actually a uh, VRF system, kind of, for chill water. You put chill water fan coils in and it's all tied into a VRF system and it's a variable speed condensing unit sits outside. You got chill water piping going all through your house. It's a system made by Multi-Aqua. Um, I'll have to introduce the, the guy who is the national sales manager in the U.S. for Multi-Aqua is a really good friend of mine. And I'll have to introduce you to him. He would be a really good podcast. Would he? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, would, that, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, you, you, know, you know what I instantly think of when, when people move to, let, let's say it, it's the example of what you just said is in-floor radiant. And then you put in a, a VRF system where each room now has its own control over heating and cooling, probably the most comfortable house ever, because you can go into a room and set it to what you want. Someone else can go into another room, set it what they want, and everybody is happy in every single room of the house. The, the thing that I think about when it comes to that is ventilation and filtration, good filtration of air. So, I mean, we don't have to discuss that this is not the topic we're on, but it's just when someone throws in a VRF, I'm like, okay, those filters are not the greatest for filtering air properly and, and getting the, the particulate um, out of the air that we want. So we have to implement some sort of ventilation and air filtration devices as well if we have a system like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, you do. But because of the fact that in the heating mode, you're not moving any air at all in a radiant heating system, mm -hmm. um, you really don't get the dust loading in the house. Mm -hmm. Okay. It doesn't get stirred up. Now yeah. you still have to deal with pressurization because you got to bring in ventilation air um, because you've still got, you know, you got exhaust fans in the building, you got exhaust fans in the bathroom, you got an exhaust fan in the kitchen. So you have to still make that air up into the system mm -hmm. and into the building. And so you got to figure out how you're going to do that. And, there are some small energy recovery ventilators that you can tie all the exhaust into that ERV and recoup some of the energy out of the exhaust air and preheat some of the air coming into the house. Uh, there are ways to do that um, with ERV systems. Uh, again, you got to sit and look at the building and figure out what you're doing with the building. You know, if I'm doing a larger building, uh, you know, condo building where I've got fan coils, 
most likely what I'm going to end up with is I'm going to have a central uh, DOAS unit, you know, dedicated outdoor air system. Uh, and that may still be tied to the boiler system. So I may have the, the, the ModCon boilers heating the building, but I may have a dead, I may have another ModCon boiler that's supplying hotter water for the makeup air unit. Because on a makeup air unit, I need that hotter water because I'm dealing with a much greater temperature split between outdoor air temperature and supplier temperature. Mm-hmm. So what what I go going back to the the filter thing and just for the audience's kind of interest is what I've thought of is like you can get really good standalone. HEPA, HEPAs and fans, and you even come with carbon activated filters. If, if you have a, a setup like that, where you're not really filtering the air through a centralized system, uh, we can throw these really good quality standalone. And some of them are made like nice, they're made compact and they, they're not bulky and ugly anymore. Uh, you can throw a couple of those in a space. Some of them do up to like a thousand square feet or even more like you could it, it, let, let's say it's a home you could throw one on floor one and one on floor two and, and it should move enough air through that hepa to start cleaning that air if you don't have a centralized system yeah that's those, that's those, a, some ideas i had yeah no that's a really good point and um i didn't think about that um you know i unfortunately the house that that we bought when we moved back to florida um has forced air heating in it and so I have a central HEPA filler built into my, you know, I had it added when we put the new furnace in this year. Um, just because I wanted, you know, we've got dogs and cats and I wanted cleaner air because just because of the pets running around the house. Yeah. But um, you're right. The the little portable HEPA units um, work really, really well. Um, they, they do a good job, uh, you know, d- depending on the size, I've seen some small desktop ones that, you know, you could put one in every room if you wanted to, and they're not outrageously expensive. Yeah, I actually, you know, you know, you know it's funny. I actually ordered a couple for my house because I wanted to see how they would work and, and if there's any benefit to them, if I felt any benefit or, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, because down in, down in my basement, in my furnace is this one inch filter. And there's a story about me going to change it to a four inch, but shit hit the fan and it so i'm like okay i want to order these and, and try them out and i ordered them paid for them through amazon no it wasn't through i can't remember who it was through i think it was through amazon but they ended up delivering them to the wrong house uh because <laughs> i looked at the tracking it was the wrong house they delivered them to or like not even close to me and then i just canceled the order and they gave me my money back like instantly i'm like wow okay that was that was pretty easy so i never got to experiment with them because of that little mishap with the shipping, but it's something I want to look into. Like you said, even for um, individual rooms, like put them in, in the kids' rooms beside their, their bed on their nightstand or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because we, we got a dog that sheds like, like, like a, like a mofo and her hair is just everywhere. And like, if she gets up and, and like kind of wiggles, her hair just flies up in the air. It'd be nice to have something to maybe catch some of that. And, you know what I mean? So it's not, yeah just all over the place but oh, anyway. i get it i get it yeah. we have we have a golden retriever and he's just a he's just a fur making machine um i mean i walk around in just socks sometimes and i go to take my socks off in the evening i'm like i swear i get golden retriever feet because there's so much hair stuck in my socks <laughs> yeah yeah 
we were hey so we were going to try to fit in um ice melting systems for driveways but i we're not going to get there and, and i'm kind of glad we're not because that could be a second episode for you and i or not a second episode but another episode for you and i that to, to talk about somewhere down the line but if if you want to give some some last thoughts on radiant if there's people out there there might be people out there that are not even in in, in the trade just they come across this on Google or something about in-floor radiant heat and, and they're like, hmm, maybe I'll listen to find out what it's all about. Um, and even for the, the technicians out there or the companies out there that are on the fence or hesitant about going that route, is there any last words that would encourage either or to, to, to go that route of, of in-floor radiant over something else? What I, will, what I will tell people is that if you've never experienced in-floor radiant, you you honestly don't know what you're missing. It you is lived the yet. <laughs> yeah you haven't lived. It is it is literally the the greatest heating system out there. There's no drafts. There's no cold spots. Um, you know the air temperature is even floor to ceiling. Um, you can it can be colder than all get out outside. You're walking around the floor in you know in the house in your stocking feet. Uh, you can walk around, you can sit around in, in your shorts. You don't feel a draft when you're sitting there because there's no air movement. There's no air blowing on you. And so you get this nice, even warm heat that's everywhere. Um, you know, you roll out of bed in the morning, your heat, your feet hit the floor and the floors are warm. So as a, from a contractor standpoint, you know, you still got to service it exactly the same way you service your warm air furnace. You still got to service the boiler. You still got to service the pump. Um, you got to think a little bit more because you're working with water instead of air. But you, you've, you've got just as much of a service base. The, the skills that you need to work on a modular boiler are the same skills you got to have. Because combustion is combustion. I don't care whether mm -hmm. it's a forced air furnace or a boiler. The combustion process is exactly the same. You know, from a from a contractor standpoint, if I'm the if I'm the heating contractor, I'd much rather sell that warm air system because at the end of the day, my customers are going to be more comfortable. And if they're more comfortable, guess what? They're not calling me complaining about drafty windows. They're not calling me complaining that, oh, it's hotter in this room than it is in that room, or it's cold in this room, and I can't get the air balanced. You know, you're going to minimize a lot of that stuff. You put in a, a well-thought-out zoning system, and it works. Yeah. You just, you, you sold me on that, that warm, fuzzy, you gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling when you were telling me about that nice, even heat on your, on your feet, sitting there, and no breeze, and sitting in my, my wife always gives me trouble because sometimes I'll, I'll sit in my boxers all day and I'll even answer the door in them or I'll run out and throw the garbage to the curb. And she's like, don't go outside in your boxers, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so comfortable, but you can't do that all the time. Um, especially in the winters here because you get kind of drafty and you get cold drafts and stuff like that. So it'd be nice to have that hydronic in-floor radiant to just kind of, because I guess, something I never thought of it. It's, it's rising. The heat's rising from the floor. And if you've done your, your diligent work, when you've put your piping down within the floor, 
it's evenly spread across so that heat is going to rise evenly above mm-hmm. that floor and just heat every single corner of the house the exact same way exactly so unless, unless you have an area that just has a stupid amount of infiltration or something like that from the outside but i mean it, generally speaking uh, that that is the way that you could be super comfortable in a house so right well the yeah. other thing that you gain because you're not taking the air in your house and running it across a hot heat exchanger, you're not drying the air out. So, you know, what's one of the things we, you know, on the residential and like commercial side, we tell people to put humidifiers in our house, right? Put a central humidifier on your furnace. So we add humidity to the air. Well, with in-floor radiant, you don't have that problem because you're not baking the air. Mm -hmm. So you're not drying it out. So the house, the humidity levels in the house just kind of stay the same all the time. And you don't get dry air and you don't get static shocks from walking across the carpet. And you don't wake up with that nasty, you know, dried out nose and throat from breathing dry air all night. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, I'm going to leave it at that for tonight, Tony. And then we're going to get back and do this. Uh, in, in a couple of months on some, cause in a couple of months we'll be like, we're already in, man, we're September in a couple of months. We're going to be like looking, looking down, uh, the, the road at Christmas <laughs> Jesus, yeah. already. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so we'll leave it at that and we'll talk about some driveway melting systems in a couple of months and, and, and we'll get that one done. But again, as always valuable knowledge, um, from, from your years of experience you're sharing with us and we appreciate it. Gary, thanks. I appreciate it. It's, as I said, it's always fun to come on and talk. We have, uh, we always have wonderful conversations about all kinds of stuff. So, uh, thank you. Thanks again. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the invitation. Oh, I meant to hit stop. Okay. There we go. I'm going to give you some insight into how my mind works here from this conversation. When I think of in-floor radiant heating, in my home, like the next house I buy or purchase or build or, or, or whatever the route I choose, this is how I picture myself with in-floor radiant. I picture waking up on a Saturday morning, go downstairs in my pajamas. I see two feet of snow outside when I kind of crack the blinds open and I'm standing there making my coffee and my feet are warm and toasty. And that heat is just evenly rising up through the home. That's kind of how I picture me enjoying in-floor radiant. Anyway, Tony, brilliant conversation. Always love talking to you. And guys, I hope you learned something because I did too. And I just like radiant in-floor heating even more now. So anyway, guys, thank you to the Master Group once again. I'm out. Happy HVACing. Hope you enjoyed the show. Follow HVAC Know It All on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, LinkedIn, and anywhere else Gary feels like popping up. This has been a Two Smokes and a Coffee production.